You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome to Voice of Islam on Saturday the 4th of March. It's uh, 10, 12 a.m. this morning in London, and you're joined by myself, uh, Shazil Lone, and my co-presenter in the studio today, Hamza Vanderman. Hamza, good morning. Morning. How are things today? Yeah, it's not bad. Good to good to be here. Nice Saturday. Indeed, indeed. And we are, um, apologies for being slightly late this morning. There was quite a lot of security measures outside our um, Battle for Two Complex mosque because the mosque is being uh, reopened today uh, from uh, the front of the building, um, having been uh, redone. And that's something that we'll be looking forward to today, and the peace symposium also. I understand. Yeah, it's exciting. Looking, it's looking nice out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's it's taken a while to do, but uh, now it's taken shape and taken form. And uh, yeah, no, it'll be it'll be a nice nice to see uh, you know the return or the front of uh, of our mosque complex. Yeah, totally. Yeah, indeed, indeed. So um, <clears throat> today uh, we'll be discussing uh, various things that have been happening in the news. Uh, we're obviously a very much a current affairs show. And we'll be looking at the Brexit deal that the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak uh, was able to settle uh, early part of this week. And also we'll look at various topics uh, that have been concurrent in the news. I think one of them has been the very unfortunate racism row and um, the, the the issue surrounding Yorkshire cricket. So that's something we'll be touching on as well. And as usual, we'll have our news roundup as well. But um, if you do have an opinion, uh, we are a live show and we do welcome callers. So please do feel free to call in. Uh, you can call us on 0208 687 7878. That's 0208 687 7878. Or you can tweet us uh, at... Uh, Voice of Islam UK, or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. So, uh, Hamza, um, let's kick off with our news roundup. What have uh, what's been current? <coughs> yes, yeah, a big. It's been a big week um, this week. It's felt a bit. <laughs> I, f- I thought this week's felt a bit like a bit of a throwback to uh, mm. 2020, 2021. All the big issues are are the things that we were probably discussing yeah. in a lot in detail in. 2020, 2021, and they're rearing their heads again. So as you said, firstly, and we'll go into more detail later on, Brexit back on on the agenda on the front pages. Amazing. Yeah, something you you haven't heard for a long, long time. You said it's a real throwback. Absolutely. And then then big stories on... Partygate and uh, and COVID uh, lockdown measures and why they were taken, yep. um, and that that's really driving the agenda this week, which is which is really quite amazing. After you know three years, it really has felt like we're revisiting old ground. But important issues and responsibilities need to be raised. It was obviously you know these are these are impacting our lives. These are things that are impacting our lives, impacted our lives as well. Mm. And so I think it is important that these aren't just treated as, um, oh, it's time to move on. Let's not cover these things. They are important that we get some answers and find out what really happened. So first and foremost, this week we had the... um, the uh, the huge legal disclosure of Matt Hancock, the former health secretary, health secretary during the COVID crisis, yep. leak of all his WhatsApp messages uh, at the time. Why is that a requirement? What's that? Why why do they have to release it? They did not have to release oh, they it. They didn't the, have to. Yeah, okay. let me let me give a bit of a backstory. It's yeah. a, it really is quite incredible, both in terms of you know. Um, the messages that are now being disclosed, but yep. also the context in which the information was received. And, you know, listeners can make up their own minds in terms of um, 
whether it mm. was right or wrong that these messages were were published. But yeah. what happened was Matt Hancock, um, uh, well described, was um, writing a book. Mm-hmm. about his time as health secretary he thought that was an important memoir to write so that historians would know you know how he made decisions at the time what was happening he thought that was a duty he needed to uh, fulfill Not, nothing to do with um, potential money that he could make off selling right. the book uh, as part of writing that book he obviously uh, didn't want to write it himself and he didn't want um, uh, so he needed to employ a ghostwriter the ghostwriter that he employed was a lady called Isabel Oakeshott Isabel Oakeshott is a quite a famous journalist in, right. in the UK yep. political journalist uh, and during Covid she was one of the uh, quite vehement uh, anti-lockdown um, right. skept- yeah, and lockdown skeptics anti-lockdown um, advocates and so he you might think that's slightly strange for Matt Hancock to ask a journalist like that to write ghost write his book yeah. but he thought at the time that this would um <clears throat> almost work to solidify his rep- improve his reputation amongst that crowd you know if Isabel Oakeshott was had seen all the messages and still wrote a kind of favorable book that yeah. that would demonstrate to his critics that there wasn't really anything to see in mm. Isabel Oakeshott's wrote so that was where he was coming from yeah he uh, and you might say well why is she willing to write the book um and, you know, I think it would be fair to say she probably wanted some extra publicity writing the book. And also she probably thought, well, I'm going to be given all these messages. I would also like to see what was happened and then can make a judgment and write the book accordingly. Yeah. Anyway, as you'd expect, she... Um, signed an NDA as part of that agreement you know you're helping me write this book as part of that you will sign an NDA and so I will give you all these messages right (laughs) she writes the book uh, and then after writing the book she says actually you know what Oh, there's a bit too much in those messages. I quite fancy making some free, free publicity, isn't it? So she's taken those, uh, and then also credibly uh, for those kind of news junkies out there who like this type of thing, mm. she's employed by News UK. So that's the owners of uh, the Sun, the Times. Okay, but she decided to take this information mm. to the Daily Telegraph. Okay. <laughs> who do not employ her and give them the front page scoop on all of this information and let them print this. So she's obviously, uh, you know, you can um, think what you want about her, but those are the facts of what she's, what she's doing. Um, And so that in itself is quite interesting. Why did he ever think that she would be appropriate? He was always at risk of doing this. Mm. What legal ramifications are there now on her on the telegraph for breaking, you know, clearly breaking the NDA? She's a got a history of breaking NDAs before so right, right. I'm guessing there's some um, she would have taken legal advice um, so there's a kind of one element of the story is simply you know do we think it's right that all these messages yeah, yeah, yeah. Are, these are these are the messages that are out there is everything these are whatsapp groups with him Boris Johnson Chris Whitty right, you know right, right. it's with you know him and Rishi Sunak Rishi Sunak and you know it, he's the messages are every whatsapp message from Matt yeah, Hancock's from phone period. at the time quite an insight I think it's probably more insightful than a book no well yeah exactly and now the, you know and so the and so you know that's the that's the backstory on how this information came out mm. and I guess people can argue whether it was right or wrong 
wrong yeah. to that information? Was it in the, it was it in the public interest? There's also obviously the COVID inquiry. Matt Hancock has given all of his WhatsApp messages to that inquiry, that legal inquiry. Yep. So they will also be, you know, preside, making a judgment on that. Sure. Obviously, n- newspapers will just selectively use the bits. Of they... course, the juicy bits will you'll find their way forward. Right? right. So, you know, you can make your own judgment on whether you think it was right that the all of these messages were disclosed in the way that they have been. But now they have. And what is the story? What is interesting? That's the other part of it. Mm. So the first part of it that's come out um, was about the care homes and how that decision yep. was made. Yep. Uh, and, you know, I think people knew this at the time, but there, it was mm. never evidenced was, you know, the government did want to try and test people going into care homes, but simply couldn't mm. manage it. And there wasn't enough tests, and therefore they decided not to deep and deprioritize that, and had more testing in hospitals. And as we now know, you know that was a big mistake, letting um, you know COVID run rife through care homes as a Absolutely, result because yeah. it wasn't tested. So, I mean, and so mm. that has now been, I guess, proven. Um, whereas before, I guess it was assumed to have happened by most people. It's now been proven through these WhatsApp messages. I think the most important thing to say is. Um, <laughs> on these messages is you know look out for the stories probably tomorrow yeah you know you don't you know i think isabel oakshot was being interviewed by someone and she said and the question was um uh is was this the most interesting thing right. and her that you you know that you found it's not that interesting was the uh, was the argument was you know is yeah. this really the most the best that you've got from all the messages and her reply was um Anybody in news will know you never release the best information no. on day one. <laughs> right, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> so I think, you know, stay tuned for more, uh, you know, interesting uh, things to come out of these messages. Mm. You'd have thought the Sunday papers are where that normally happen. And yep. you'd have thought that there'd probably be some messages, including uh, Rishi Sunak, to make it current. Yeah, you know, sure. You know, messages about former ministers, former prime ministers. Obviously, they're important. We want to know what happened. But mm. from a news point of view, you know, inf- messages related to current ministers and, cu- and the current prime minister and their positions they were taking would be of more interest. So do we think, though, that a lot of the fact that these messages have, have come out, obviously, is a, is a very you know, sort of unprecedented period of time. Do you think the government will get a pass on it from that perspective? You know, that it was, you know, COVID was something that, you know, we've all kind of lived through it now, you know, and we didn't really know where we were going, you know, not just as a society, but in terms of the the, the, the disease itself. Um, obviously, now we look at it, you know, with, with different lenses, but... At that time, with the unknown, do you think the government gets a pass on this? I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if they get a pass or whether it's already kind of factored into yeah. everyone's decision, like For thinking and perception back, potentially. On yeah, selection. Because I think, as I said, on look, there might be a, some sort of smoking gun where some minister took a crazy decision against all of the evidence that was presented. Right. Mm. There might be a smoking gun in there where evidence was presented and someone overruled someone and it turned out to be a horrible mistake. Right. It could, it could happen. Yeah. And then I think that does um, change things and you yeah. might see more min- – you yeah. might see ministers – Yeah, you might yeah. see ministers lose their jobs and stuff. You might do. Yeah. I, I, that would surprise me. I think what you're more likely to get is people – the things that people assumed happened but could never quite prove. Yeah. Everyone's already assumed that they happened will come out as proof. And does that change people's perceptions? I don't think so, because you've mm. already baked it in. You've yeah. already assumed something happened. Seeing that may seeing that then put forward as fact, I think you've already in your mind 
yeah. you know, determine that that happened. So I can't see it. Um, I, I'd be surprised if there were many smoking guns. And I think most of this has already been um, assumed by people. I don't think I still think it's important, right, that these um, mm. whether through these messages or through the inquiry. Yeah. You know, that responsibility and um, the facts do emerge. That is important just for future decision-making and learning and people taking responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think ministers obviously should be aware. I think that's the thing you take away from it, that, you know, when you do communicate and then you are, you know, saying one thing publicly and then privately you think totally something else. Mm. You know, I think that's where that uh, inconsistency, you know, you, you kind of do then lose faith in people and, and, and institutions and, and the system somewhat that, you know, you've been elected to make good decisions or, you know, the best decisions you can, yet... Your personal, you know, situations or your viewpoints are very, very different. Yeah. Um, I think that's where it's, uh, you know, it, it gives context. There's no doubt about it. So, yeah. and, and I think it enables people to see um, the context, as you said, the context in which decisions were made. So, mm. you know, lots of diverse opinions, lots of, di- you know, I don't think, I think what we'll find is that lots of the data wasn't actually that um, definitive and there were lots of actually options to take. And it's important that people, I think it's good for society that people can see that um and also that politicians can learn from the uh, from from this in the future mm. and so i think you know the for me the inquiry is more important than if it takes a long time i think that's where isabel oakshot is angry she thinks the inquiry is taking too long right. um and therefore it was important to disclose these messages now rather than everybody sitting there waiting for this inquiry which yeah. I, you know i see the argument in that um it's quite another t- uh, you know to leak all these things when yeah. you've when you've uh, agreed to take these messages on the <laughs> yeah on the premise that you're, they're not the yeah I mean you'll, you'll write a book about it but you won't release them as they are carte blanche exactly so that's the fir- that's the first thing it's been mm. running the agenda this week I think you'll see it uh, lead the newspapers tomorrow and it might throw up some tricky uh, questions for Rishi Sunak I'd have thought next week but that's mm. ongoing and then secondly the other throwback across every front page today is back mm. to uh, Boris Johnson the former prime minister. And Partygate and the cross-party inquiry into whether he misled MPs is currently ongoing. And the splashes this morning are saying, you know, these and this is cross-party. This isn't just a, you know, a stitch up by Labour. This is cross-party. And so that means that you've got Tory MPs there as well. But the evidence apparently looks like it's going to show that he did misled, uh, mislead Parliament. Mm. And there's a lot of hypotheticals here, but if that were to be the case, uh, he would be suspended from uh, Parliament, okay. and it's likely there'd be a by-election for his seat. Okay. So, um, you know, Boris uh, Johnson's political uh, career, I guess, is up in the air at the moment. He'll be quite worried about this. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, only last week, you know, there was lots of talk from his allies about staging a comeback. Was that is that was that reality prior to, obviously, Rishi getting the deal done? Yeah, I think so. I think they were genuinely... Amazing. I think, you know, Boris and his fans were genuinely looking at that, saying, you know, if Rishi Sunak messes this up, this is a chance for right. uh, a comeback and how things have changed in the course of... You know, we've seen things change in political fortunes really really quickly over the last last few years you know sometimes in the matter of days but again at the beginning of last week Boris Johnson fans and allies would have been sitting there thinking this is going to be a great week for us and at the end of the week it's absolutely uh, awful for him um, and you know could see him in 
quite a bit of trouble. Um, but just on that cross-party stuff and on mm. and on uh, lockdown as well, the famous Sue Gray this week, uh, Sue Gray, who famously led the inquiry as the, as the head civil servant, uh, looking into whether she, she, if people remember, wrote the report into Boris's uh, and Partygate. Yeah, of course. One was everything was redacted. Right? Exactly. That was yeah. the, the infamous Sue Gray. Sue mm. Gray has now taken a job for Steer Can't Sit. Sir Keir Starmer. Okay, she has taken a job working for the leader opposite leader of the opposition right. as the chief of staff, as his chief of staff. <laughs> wow! And so there's been uh, outcry this week from Tory MPs and Tory um, party members saying, you know, what? How can this be? She? How can the the you know such a senior civil servant now just go and take a position working for the opposition mm. this just proves that the report on Boris Johnson was a stitch up um you know you know you you know it, she's clearly showing her political colors now yeah. by taking this job uh, and so should that throw up into question her previous work essentially attacking the prime minister through that report yeah uh, and the um the appointment was it's worth noting that the appointment was supposed to be a major coup seen as a major coup for yeah, uh, Keir Starmer mm-hmm. yeah exactly being able to recruit such a senior civil servant into this position yeah. um you know was supposed to be a great win for Labour showing that they're ready for government this mm. this really senior serious civil servant was prepared to and back that um but it didn't quite play out that way and even lots of you know kind of labor um supporters i guess were arguing yeah you know if this was on the other if this if this was the other way around Mm. picture it the other way around and there was a senior civil servant who you know did a report let's say and and took a job for the prime minister yeah people you know rightly on the opposition would be saying what stitch up this just shows that you know so it hasn't landed as uh, Keir Starmer wanted, but you know I think it's probably just something that he gets over and then can you know yeah. she, he thinks she's the right person. But it's in, it's interesting to see this kind of revolving door, and I think you'll start to see a bit more of this. Yeah, as, because there will be as the change of guard comes, exactly. comes closer, right? Exactly. As, as the change of guard mm. comes closer, individuals start to think about their future careers and which side of the political divide might be uh, more <laughs> yeah. opportune to be in. Let's say as we get nearer to the election so don't be surprised to see more of more of this stuff as sad as that may uh, sound yeah obviously we'll touch a little bit more on politics as as the day goes on uh, one of the stories that i picked up was um again nhs related and um it was bbc news that reported that consultants in england uh, apparently want three times their basic pay to provide emergency cover for junior doctors during this month's uh, three-day walkout. <laughs> so the strikes are still there, and, and obviously they're still causing issues. But then at the same time, I mean, surely something like this. I mean, the British Medical Association is recommending its members ask for £158 an hour to work during the day, rising to £262 for a night shift. Um, you know, you compare that. Consultants earn between eighty eight to 190000 a year in basic pay, that works out to be an equivalent of forty-two to fifty-seven pounds an hour in a forty-hour week. So that's quite a bit of a difference that the PMA is advising doctors to go and ask for. I mean, surely this is, you know, from one side you're, you know, you're striking because you want more pay, but surely this is obliterating the pot that you're going to be negotiating from. It's interesting, isn't it? You know, you would have thought that, you know, there's all, uh, you know, obviously what we've been through the last few years, a lot of support. Um, for medical professions, you yeah. know, in the medical profession, um, 
you know you do wonder sometimes you know you take that public support you push it too yeah. much and it can turn very very can turn very very quickly yeah. and i think you know some of this um you know some of the even the strikes you know for all staff mm. uh with no you know kind of basic cover to p- make sure that basic services can provide it i think is a dangerous route for the uh, for the bma Absolutely. to go down yeah, because like you said, um, you know, public opinion and what have you, you know, that sympathy that people have mm. be eroded very quickly. And that's exactly the words that uh, Danny Mortimer, the chief executive of NHS employees, had said this week, that they themselves have sympathy for the plight of doctors, but it's being eroded by these, uh, you know, these unilateral demands being made for this premium pay. Mm. So, yeah, I think... Um, I think it comes to a point where people, you know, will have sympathy. But when they, when you see you, you know, your loved ones being deprived of, you know, the right kind of, um, you know, medical uh, care, then then that becomes a concern, you know. And then, you know, how long will people put up with that, you know? Especially so. if there's deaths and those type of things involved. I think so. Look, I think people understand their issues and, you know, mm. the cost of living crisis and, you know, um, the issues that nurses and junior doctors are going through. And sure. as you say, there's a lot of sympathy and a lot of support there. Mm. Um but, you know, I think you see on the continent there are provisions made and the, obviously in, on the continent, actually, they're much more kind of union friendly. They've always had had that in, in Europe, in mainland Europe. Mm. And even they have provisions in there that say, you know, at all times, basic minimum standards. There's a basic minimum standards benchmark that has to be met mm. um, regardless of, of strike action. Yeah, in certain industries and the medical profession obviously being one of them and I think people are you know concerned that you know you you, know, you use this um, and then as you say those figures there do sound quite um, quite outrageous yeah yeah no I think obviously people you know there is a place for striking and, and, and what have you and they're making that point and I think trade unions and uh, these types of um, entities do have a play, uh, place within uh, this negotiation, mm. but uh, you don't want to get to the stage where you know you're, you're cutting off your your nose to spite your face kind of thing. And I think that's what's going on here. I think so. It'll be. Look, I think there's a lot of. Um, and I think we discussed this before. Mm. There's a there, there are you know plans for lots of strike action through this year. Um, as we've as we've discussed previously, in in so many different professions, whether they be teachers, um, transport, trains, uh, motorway support, mm. you know, med- across all, across all industries, and I think you know most of those professions have started off this year with quite a bit of public support, yeah, um, for their positions in general. Mm. I think it will be interesting to see how the how the public support changes evolves over the year as more of strikes take place which obviously will annoy more people as they continue and also as some of those demands um you know come to light and and people think that some of them are you know let's say quite outrageous yeah absolutely let's see how that pans out what we'll do we'll take a short break uh, and then we'll return with our main topic after the break on the other side please do join us then life of muhammad peace be upon him High Moral Qualities Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth, and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle, Abu Talib. Both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father, Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence. 
but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity, and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan, his mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, If you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one, but of seven children, and passed on. Except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It's the 4th of March and 10.38am here from our studios in Battle Fatu. You are joined by myself, Shazil Alone, and my co-presenter in the studio, Hamza Vanderman. Um, Hamza, we obviously have had our news roundup. Uh, let's touch a little bit on our main topic today. And as you said, the throwback topic of Brexit. Yeah, back on, back on Brexit and... Mm. Um, We've got a, a a new agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. We're calling this one the Windsor Framework. I saw that. Yeah, we've always indeed, you know indeed. we've always got to have different uh, different names for these uh, all of these things just to confuse people. And they have to be posh names. They can't be you know they can't be the Stacey Agreement. They no, have no, to no, be no. the Windsor. This agreement. is the Windsor. No, no, this isn't an agreement. This framework. A framework. Right, okay. <laughs> And um, and it's interesting because obviously last week um, there had been lots of talk about Rishi Sunak trying to ne- renegotiate this uh, protocol, yep. this framework. Yep. And there was lots of talk about how he was going to fail and how um, he wasn't going to get uh, the DEP on side. He wasn't going to get 
um, the um, Brexiteer wing of the Tory party on side. There was no way he could negotiate a better deal than um, Boris Johnson. Mm. And uh, lo and behold, he has um, announced a framework that most people uh, seem to have agreed that is a a, you know, a good improvement, a good step up on the original uh, protocol. Mm-hmm. And he's basically faced no opposition or very, very little criticism yeah. uh, on what on what he's done. Um, so what has what has he done? So at the moment, the agreement is and the issue is that Northern Ireland and um, England, Scotland, UK uh, used to be um, part of the EU. Yep. And therefore, goods that came into England from, let's just say, France could come into the UK at any point, And once they were uh, without any uh, rules or checks, mm. um, because they would have been checked um, as part of being in the EU, and then they could freely flow from, uh, let's say, England to Northern Ireland uh, with no issues and then through to the Republic of Ireland with no checks either, because that was yep. all part of one economic zone, the single market. Mm. After Brexit, um, that was no longer seen possible. And what that meant was the protocol that Boris Johnson agreed was that goods could come into the into the UK, into, let's say, England. Yeah. And w- as they went across the Irish Sea mm. um, into Northern Ireland, they would face checks, yep. which they never had to before because Northern Ireland is obviously part of the UK. Sure. Um, but due to the issues now, they would face checks there. So that they could then flow down to the Europe, um, the Republic of Ireland, the EU, without any checks. Yeah. The point being, it was seen far too dangerous politically, and because of uh, the, hit, the the historical context, political context of the relationship between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland, to have checks done at that border. Right. So yep. to say. Oh, why would there be checks between England and Northern Ireland? We don't need that. Mm. The goods can flow from there to there. Yep, fine. Mm-hmm. But then instead of checks at that point, there would need to be checks at the Irish border between Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Yep, and indeed. putting up a hard border there was seen as, you know, very, very dangerous, would yeah, be, go yeah. against the Good Friday Agreement and cause mm. all sorts of issues. So the compromise that Boris Johnson did was to have the checks done between Northern Ireland and England. Right. The Northern Ireland uh, people, uh, you know, people from Northern Ireland, and also people from, you know, the um, the Unionists in the in the UK mm. didn't like that because it meant that they basically treated as two separate countries, and Northern yeah. Ireland and the UK should be seen as, you know, one entity, right? Or you know, our one or our one entity. So why would there be checks between that? No one yeah, liked yeah, that. Yeah. So it was seen as a, a compromise at the time. Boris Johnson presented that as the as a as a great win and a really good outcome. And yep. it was seen as a, a compromise, you know, not an ideal compromise, but one that, that would work. Mm. Uh, what Rishi Sunak has done, uh, or, uh, you know, not Rishi Sunak, but the, the new position, the Windsor framework, yeah. is to introduce uh, two lanes, mm-hmm. a red lane yep. um, and a green lane. Yeah. Green lane is work for goods that come from the UK to the nor- to Northern Ireland and will remain and, in New- Northern and will Ireland. remain in yeah. Northern Ireland. So mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. goods can if you can confirm that goods are not going to move to the Republic of Ireland and therefore the EU mm. um, you don't need to have any checks on those goods. Right. Right? Brilliant because yeah. it's all you're already in the UK so no checks. Sure. Then there's a red lane for if goods are going to go to 
the Republic of Ireland and you're just using that as a channel, they might end up in the Republic of Ireland, then they do need to to have some checks because that's when they go into another zone. Mm-hmm. So essentially, we've just created two lanes yeah. and um, everyone's buzzing for it. And, <laughs> and um, you know, it seems like a, it does seem like, it seems like a no-brainer almost. It seems like a good idea. It's obviously a step up from the old system, which was essentially everything was in the red lane. Yeah. Now at least there's a green lane for some stuff that will stay in Northern Ireland. So it seems like a no-brainer. It seems like common sense. It seems like a good thing. Mm. Uh, everyone seems to be on board with it. The, the one thing that fascinates me on this is, is um, I mean, I think we just chuckled there as we went through it. Is it, mm. it hardly seems like yes, rocket science. Rocket science exactly. And it's, it's, it seems slightly strange that this has taken, I don't know, two years to come up come up with yeah yeah you know i'm sure there were some very smart people around the table trying to work out how to do this mm. and it does seem amazing this has taken um uh so long but there we go what was the i, I saw there was some u.s involvement there they had to take um some blessings from the u.s <laughs> is that part of the good friday agreement um it's not part of the good friday agreement but mm. the uh us has always um had an outsized role in this because yeah. of uh irish uh, american connections sure. that are obviously very strong yeah and um and so and the and the united states of america helped to broker the good friday agreement right, so they okay. have a they have they've always seen to have a role here mm-hmm. and they can use their influence and pressure to get the republic of ireland on board for certain things and stuff like that right right, right. so it doesn't it doesn't technically technically need yeah. you know a, approval from from uh, president biden or the united states but yep. it you know, to have that endorsement yeah. is clearly extremely helpful, and to have mm. you know that support is ex- clearly um, extremely helpful. And you'll remember at various times during Brexit and during the negotiation of the in- initial Northern Ireland Protocol, you'd have comments from President Biden, yeah. you know, um, criticizing what was happening, mm. you know, spelling out the dangers that it could have on the Good Friday Agreement. So the US is always interested, and as I say, they've come out and said this is you know this seems to be a good deal yeah and this is a positive development um because it obviously is because there's a green lane right (laughs) (laughs) but yes the u.s is always the u.s always gets involved in this type of stuff Mm. and they seem to be uh happy with this um we're happy with this agreement it seems most people are and so i'd be very surprised if this doesn't um end its uh you know because it still has to be voted on Correct. Yeah, that's still it. Still has to be voted on right? both. Yeah, both in the um, both in the ha- House of Parliament here and also in Ireland. Mm. So um, but that's DUP, isn't it? Yeah. So there could yeah. still be some. There still could be some hurdles. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there'll be something in some small print that people maybe haven't quite got their heads around yet. So I think I'm probably, in fairness, oversimplifying what what's been yeah. uh, what what's been come up with, mm. but. At the moment, these are good signs. These are positive signs. I think we should, you know, we should say that these are good signs. People are happy with this. It does, yeah. you know, sort out some of those, uh, you know, very sensitive problems uh, that you have in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Mm. Um, you know, it is that is a sensitive situation. It does need to be uh, treated with care, and it does seem that the, you know, we've come to a uh, outcome that most parties are happy with, satisfied with. So, in terms of political ramifications and fallout, um, it's not so much fallout, but more rea- you know reaction. Now, this has been seen as a plus point for uh, the current PM uh, Rishi Sunak. Um, why is it such a big um, sort of feather in his cap? Um, 
is there a possible you know turning of the tide potentially for the way people view the conservative parties running into the next election yeah look i mean it's um he hasn't had many wins, wins let's yeah. say in, mm. in his time uh, as prime minister yeah it's obviously a really difficult you know economic environment to be prime minister yeah yep. um so it's you know it's a difficult situation and he hasn't had many wins mm. this was seen you know this is uh being positioned as a big win mm. you know if Boris Johnson positioned the last agreement as a big win, um, but then it still faced lots of criticism from various parties, and mm. he still said this is the best thing that you'll ever be able to negotiate. Mm. To come up with an improvement of that, you know, sure. you need, you know, you should um, receive credit for that. So it's a big win. It also cuts to um, his credentials as a kind of Brexiteer and ability to get Brexit done. Sure. I think you might remember during the leadership campaign. Uh, he was, even though he campaigned for Brexit yeah. in, the, in the most recent uh, Tory leadership campaign, which he lost originally yes. to yeah, the yeah, trust, yeah. He, his, part of that was because he was seen as the kind of metropolitan Remainer for whatever reason. Right. Mm. And um, this will help to burnish his kind of Brexit credentials, his ability to get Brexit done and manage that situation. Mm. And so in that sense, it helps him with um, with that Part that wing of the party and yep. get support from that wing of the party, which he didn't previously have. So it is a feather in his cap. He mm. will be feeling good about himself. Um, the wider question about how much of a kind of broader impact will this have mm. on his success, on the Conservative Party's success, it's obviously very difficult to tell. Yeah. But um, I think you've got to, you know, he will have to string together quite a few of these yeah. uh, to have any impact. Otherwise, you know, it'll be back to back to normal with high energy prices, high interest rates, all the rest of it. I think that's the challenge, right? I think uh, regardless of what, of what you do and what you stand up in terms of your principles as a PM, I mean, look, he, he does come across as someone who's obviously savvy. Um, you know, he doesn't uh, present himself as, you know, the lovable rogue that was Boris Johnson, nor does he represent himself as, you know, um, you know, the new Thatcher, which Liz Trust almost tried to do mm-hmm. and failed, obviously, very miserably. You know, having not read the room when it comes to you know, um, you know, economics. Um, so I think um, Rishi is treading uh, as careful a path as he can, but I think the challenge will be, as you said, cost of living crisis and economic turnaround. You know, we do have inflation still as a problem here in the UK, and while the Bank of England will continue to potentially raise interest rates further, I think there will come a point or a tipping point where. You know, you don't want to be raising interest rates into a recession. And I think that's where his challenge will occur because people will say, "Okay, my quality of life and my cost of living, my pound is worth less. It's your fault. Yeah, I mean, I think what his team are probably uh, sitting there thinking, you Mm. know, in terms of the next six months, a year, probably until the next election, probably a year. Yeah. Is, um, you know, they're. He's trying to position himself as a very competent manager, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Um, not not kind of uh, ideologically driven, but just competent, can get things done mm. and achieve good outcomes almost. And I think he'll take this as the first proof point in that showing himself to be competent at coming up with solutions on problems and delivering good outcomes and so what he needs is a few more is a few more of these to be able to just show this uh that i am just a smart competent um leader 
Hmm. I can get things done. I'm not ideologically driven and I can help this country navigate to a better path just through yeah. you know, being a kind of really good technocrat almost. Right. Um, just being on top of the detail, understanding what's going on and making dis- good decisions, just hmm. having good judgment. Yeah. And that's what, you know, that's what, how he's going to be trying, that's how they're going to, that's how he would be trying to position himself. Yeah. And so if you're trying to do that, there isn't really a big bang for that. That is about being able to demonstrate that consistently over a period of time. And this is basically step one. Uh, mm. And so his team will be sitting there rightly happy, really happy and saying, okay, what's the next one? Yeah, you know what's the next, yeah. what's the next, what's the next bit where we can show some progress yeah. and that we've made the right calls. Yeah, uh, and they just got to string those together. It's not easy, but they have got to string those together. Yeah, I think that's that's quite quite key on the the whole scenario. I think for, for I mean the, the good thing is I think over the last six months or so we've been politically quiet, meaning you know we haven't been in headlines. We're not the laughing stock of the world. You know, having you know seen what happened with Liz Trust, unfortunately, and, and you know Boris Johnson going from unfortunately from one lie to another. It seemed. <laughs> Um, you know, and having inquiries and, and that mm. that is still ongoing. And it's still, I think maybe from Rishi's perspective as well, seeing that Boris Johnson's getting pulled up for, you know, these sort yeah. of things and Matt yeah. Hancock's being pulled in, that's very much a previous administration issue. Yeah. And again, that keeps him out of the limelight directly, having said that. I mean, I'm sure there'll be some juicy bits, as you said, which maybe refer to him. Um, but I think from the Hancock um, messages that were released, you know, there was that eat out, uh, help out to eat out. Yeah, you know, and I think um, Hancock had called it something like you know uh, help out to spread the virus out or something along those lines. So um, yeah, but the fact again, I think his position that you know Rishi was trying to help the economy and wanting to do something a bit more positive. So yeah, I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, how things pan out and whether the uh, you know the Conservatives are able to turn the tide. Uh, against what was looking like a landslide uh, victory uh, for Labour whenever the election was going to be called. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? This, I mean, um, I can't even remember. What, when was the, Bre- the Brexit vote? Was 2016? I think so. 2016. It's amazing that we're still, you know, still pre- potentially campaigning on getting Brexit done. Yeah. It's amazing after so many, so many years, but, you know. I mean, there was talk even of some some of the reversals, right? I mean, that was being touted, I think, you know, less than a month ago as well, that is that the right thing to do? Economically, we are in a fix. Shall we just, you know, not divorce the EU? Uh, I think even that was being touted on, on the table, but obviously now. It was yeah, interesting, wasn't it? I mean, the, you know, when um, there was there were quite a few, uh, re, you know, Remain supporters again mm. out in droves when um, Rishi Sunak announced this uh, Windsor framework because yeah. he characterised, you know, how he was ca- characterising Northern Ireland's position was, you know, your country now has the best economic position in the world. You're part of the uh, single market. Uh, and able to do trade there and you're part of the UK and mm. um, you know there are lots of remains out there saying oh I wonder how you know the UK could replicate this amazing position that the uh, that Northern Ireland's in how about you know you're part of the single market yeah. <laughs> but you know that's not that's not where we're at and I think you know that's not where we're at and um I think that was probably quite an unfair criticism of of where we've got to in Northern Ireland. Yeah, no, I mean, look, obviously that that's a, a big picture problem. Uh, but there was one other small thing that I saw that which uh, that was put out by uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, spokesperson was in regards to I don't know if you saw this story about uh, the Roald Dahl books. 
Okay. So there's some talk that there'll be removal of the references of some of the characters' appearance and weight. Right. Right? Because that sparked some debate. So they said that, you know, um, you know, some of the, the very famous books that children grew up reading um, have to be updated for a more suitable modern audience. So, <laughs> you know, um, you know, there's that woke culture and what have you, yeah. and, and they want to change some of these things. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, one of uh, uh, Richie Sunak's spokesperson said was that works of fiction should be preserved and not airbrushed. And I agree with that. Yeah, I think they're doing two things now, aren't they? They're on the roll, specifically on the Roald Dahl books. Mm. There's now going to be um, original versions with like a warning, with like a warning on it. Amazing. <laughs> and then the updated versions, which um, you know don't make fun of uh, giants. And um, uh, yeah, I mean, look, one of the characters in Charlie and Chocolate Factory was called Augustus Gloop. Is now described as enormous, and the word fat has been removed from every book. <laughs> Mrs. Twit from the Twits is no longer ugly and beastly, but simply beastly. Um, and in the same book, a weird African language is no longer weird. And the words crazy and mad have been removed as a result of emphasis on mental health, the newspaper reported. And a threat to knock her flat in Matilda has become giving her a right talking to. And the BFG's coat is no longer black, while Mary, the BFG, now goes still as a statue instead of white as a sheet. <laughs> I'm amazed by some of those. I, I genuinely am. Uh, you know, I think, I think we really have. I mean, on certain matters. I mean, does does that really make a difference? You know. I think a lot of people. Um, it's, it's it's amazing how these decisions are made. So the publisher basically makes that decision. Mm. I don't know what the publisher makes the decision based on. I guess they've done some market research and assumed that this is um, an issue for the book's kind of sales over the next five years. Yeah, and therefore let's take some of these because otherwise, why would you do it as a as a publisher? Mm. So I, my only assumption can be that you decide as a publisher. People are no longer buying your books. Parents are no longer buying your books yep. because of some of these words yeah. or messages. I don't know. It must I be, right? I, now, I doubt... <laughs> maybe they've got that wrong. Or, or maybe they've got it absolutely right. Put Rolls Dahl books right back in the, you know, sort yes. of into the into the light, a public into light, the spotlight, debate. and said, you know, you know, here, here, people, here's two versions. Buy them both. Buy them both. Compare and contrast. Yeah, now it's for everyone. Now you've got originals for everyone. Yeah. For people people like you who don't care about any of this stuff, (laughs) Shazam. I just think I just think (laughs) something that was written uh, probably in the seventies, I don't know how uh, when when Roald uh, Roald uh, actually wrote those books, but I mean yeah, I I just think it's just you know, we go too far to I I think in certain matters. I think it's just, just it's just it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense to it's me. Interesting, why, isn't it? It's interesting, is it? Why that have such big influence, those yeah, words, yeah, yeah. and have that much of an impact on people. Yeah, the interesting bit as well is you think that by taking out these references from books mm. that... Um, that uh, people won't think it. Yeah, or, uh, you know, you basically... Um, by taking out these words, you don't, there's no discussion around it, right? Whether yeah. you know whether it was nice or not nice, yeah, whether you should yeah, say yeah. it, you shouldn't say it with Absolutely. your kids. It's just whitewashed. There's no discussion around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, but then it's as if so when it does happen, because it inevitably will happen in real life. Mm. You know, those types of words will be used sure. in real life. Sure. You know, 
will will kids be able to deal with it properly and you know argue whether someone should talk like that or not because they've never come across it yeah no i, I agree with you i agree with you because a child's imagination is you know like if you talk about characters in the book oh so and so is big okay why are they big i wonder you know those yeah, exactly. sort of things come up in question and then but then Ultimately, when you see someone and you know you, you you know you're at school and and you know a child is bigger than another, how do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah there has to be a sensitivity and what right. have you. But if you have never had that discussion, say, look, okay, look, they've talked about this character in a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then you see see someone in real life and you don't have the sensitivity to deal with it. Then again, you know, we've missed a trick, no? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I you know whenever I read. Um, books with my daughter mm. it's not like you're just reading the book I mean almost every other line I'm getting a million questions yeah, about yeah. you know what's going on here why <laughs> is it like that you know if you think you're just sitting there reading a book and you're just jogging through the lines yeah let's see I mean let's return after our break and we continue our discussion join us after the news you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Good morning and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live. It is the 4th of March on a Saturday um, and we are here in our studios from Battle for Thu in South London. Feel free to join us um, on this live show. Uh, you can call in if you have an opinion. Uh, you can call us on 0208 687 7878 uh, or at our Twitter handle at Voice of Islam UK, all one word. Or via the website, which is www.voiceofislam.co.uk. The subject that we are now going to discuss, which has been flaring up quite a bit this week, uh, is the um, racism row that's um, basically um, been flared up this week in regards to Yorkshire Cricket Club. So the background of this is that Azim Rafiq, who was a um, player for Yorkshire, he claimed in 2020 um, that he'd suffered racist abuse and he later called English cricket institutionally racist. Now, ex-England and Yorkshire captain Michael Vaughan, he was part of the setup at the time. Um, he categorically denies uh, racism allegations and he was due to give evidence, uh, I think, or had given evidence on Friday. So there's a disciplinary hearing that runs from March the 1st to the 9th with Yorkshire Cricket Club and seven individuals all charged with bringing the game into disrepute, some of whom were ex-England players. These have include uh, Matthew Hoggard, Tim Bresnan, um, Richard Pryor have all withdrawn from this hearing, uh, while Gary Balance has admitted the charge and will not participate. So there has been quite a lot of issues thrown up by this, and it's not just surrounding the cricket um, in the sense that I think there was even a point where um, it was said that Mr. Azim Rafiq's sister, who was doing work experience and was in and around heading, heading me on a media day, um, that Mr. Tim Bresnan, who used to be a bowler for England um, in the late 2000s, early 2000s, uh, had made a reference again to his um, Azim Rafiq's Pakistani heritage or his sister's Pakistani heritage when they saw her at the media day. And again, another racist slur was used, apparently. Now, it's got to the stage now where I think, you know, I think Michael Vaughan has basically said that this is a terrible look for the game. But I think this goes beyond that now. I think the fact that we've reached this point, it says a lot about more about society, let alone the game. I don't think the game is what's, what, what is, is the issue here. Yeah. It, it says more about where we are as a society, uh, in, in Britain in particular. 
Um, you know, I think some of, I mean, just to recap some of the points, um, and, and now, you know, it kind of falls between that place of what was perhaps acceptable then is definitely not acceptable now. But again, it maybe it ties back into what we were talking about before in terms of this Roald Dahl thing. Have we gone a little bit too far? And I think on certain things um, here, what was acceptable then is is the issue. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure if this stuff was acceptable then, was it? I think there's probably less of a uh, tolerance from players now to accept that type of uh, language or behaviour. Yeah. Uh, and therefore these things get raised and stamped out much quicker than I think they would have done now back then. But mm. I don't think they were seen as acceptable back then. I think probably, though, players didn't feel comfortable raising issues in the same way that they do now. Right. And I think... Um, other players know that and therefore this behaviour doesn't really I would be surprised if this type of behaviour continues now because if any of this did happen now and this might be a naive assumption but I would have thought if stuff like this happened now a player would immediately raise it to somebody and it would kind of be squashed out whereas maybe 10 years ago 15 years ago I think players probably would have felt uncomfortable raising it and wouldn't want to talk about it and therefore it kind of escalates because then people think it's acceptable and you get this situation this crazy situation mm. where five or six players are all just you know and and high profile players and yeah. people are too scared to say anything and they just keep going i mean it's interesting because it, when you start hearing now more i mean we talked about the whatsapp messages that were released and what have you and as you hear more about what was actually said at the time that then kind of brings out a bit of an emotion. Mm. Um, so what I'd read uh, on the BBC, and these are the key points, there was uh, two other parts of the charge against Bresden as an example here. And he used the terms the brothers and you lot in a reference to Asian players at Yorkshire. Rafiq alleged that Bresden would regularly refer to him and the other Asian players, including England spinner Adil Rashid, as the brothers, quote-unquote. And it was claimed that Bresden used the term towards Rafiq, Rashid, Ajmal Shahzad and Rana Al-Navid Hassan before a 2020 match against Nottinghamshire at Trent Bridge in June 2009. And Vaughan is accused of saying something like, too many of you lot, we need to do something about it, to those four players before the same game, which he he completely categorically denies it. But there are other sort of terms, and Bresden said he had no recollection of asking, what are the brothers doing tonight for dinner? And he said it is unlikely to use that phrase. He said he did use the term brothers or brother, but not in a racial context. So, you know, those were the things that were being said at that time. How much of those do you take as an affront as an Asian, as an Asian person of Asian origin? It's difficult. I mean, I think most of that is, is, um, it's, it's pretty unacceptable. Yeah. Is the tricky bit of it is, is, um, kind of how much context around it what was there and because i think there has been some talk about you know azim rafiq himself you know not using so you know the greatest language back and i think yes there i'm not saying that makes any of it okay but i can see but i can see a situation where um if something isn't stamped out or, or kind of uh raised at an early enough point people think it's okay and they think other people think it's okay and it 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 sadly um 
spirals in in that direction. Yeah, look, I mean, look, uh, in terms of what you mentioned there, exactly that point uh, that Azim Rafiq's, I think there was a tweet or something where he'd said something about the Jewish faith, which was taken badly. Uh, And obviously we don't purport that that's something you should be doing. But does that take away from the fact that he suffered this racism over a number of years at a professional sports you know, club. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. You know, just because he he had made those things, does it make the 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 act of what he suffered any less? No, totally. I, no, not at all. And I think it's really important that this stuff is um, aired and kind of root, rooted out. Mm. Um, but I, to some extent, I, I I don't know if he, if he at the time when this stuff was being discussed, if he was laughing along with it mm. and um, you know didn't say anything at any stage to say that this is making me feel really uncomfortable to anybody, and he was kind of seen to be laughing along with it, not in a I don't think that makes it right. Yeah, but I can see in that situation where somebody thinks, oh, he's actually quite enjoying this. Yeah. Again, I'm not saying that this is right. I'm just saying I'm just trying to. I'm trying to explain how I think something like this can escalate if no individual at any point in this says to someone, I don't like that. Yeah. Um, now, you're right. It probably, should, you know, some of this stuff probably shouldn't need someone to have to say, by the way, I don't like this. People should know that. But at the same time, there's there's nothing wrong in saying to someone, if you hear something that you don't like, say, by the way, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I don't like that. Can you stop it? And then if it continues, that's the diff- that's a different situation. But if that original conversation doesn't have place, I'm a you know I don't know. Mm, I think when it comes to racism in particular, and I think we're not talking about the 1900s here. We're talking about 2009, right? Yeah, in the yeah. Sense yeah. That you know, you know, when you refer to people like you lot and those types. No, of no, that I mean, yeah, that's different. You know, but the brothers one, he might have been calling himself the brother. They might have been calling themselves the brothers. I'm not saying again. I'm not saying that's a good thing they should have been doing, or whether it was like played upon. And then he throws it back at them. You can't say it. I'm just saying for some of the for some of what you've been through there, I can I can see a situation where it happened. Not the not the the, the you lot is totally different, right? Yeah. That's like and. But I, it's almost like if you don't stamp out the early stuff, you you yourself, and you don't have the confidence yourself. And I think that's where the bigger problem is. He obviously felt at no stage comfortable enough to complain about this to either the individual or anyone else at the club. And then it doesn't get stamped out, and then people think, oh, this is okay. And it's a, it's a massive cultural problem that, that, that then spirals. I mean, look, having worked in, in like the banking culture, which is majority, um, you know, Caucasian. Mm. I mean, I remember growing up, uh, not growing up, sorry, working uh, in a working environment. And, you know, one of my, one of my, um, well, my bosses, like CEOs, would walk past and uh, see one of my colleagues who's a presenter as well on the show, Saf. And he said, uh, you know, nod his head, all right, Taliban? You know, and, and in those days, you laugh, they laugh, you know, but, you know, you, you know, I don't know if you say anything back to them, you may do, you know. Um, so, you know, when you have different conversations, you know, then then you talk about, oh, the England cricket team, you know, someone pops over and says, oh, how's England doing today? And, and, and like one of my colleagues said, oh, and he's Asian, right? He said, oh, yeah, uh, we're 190 for two. I stood up, I was like, we? <laughs> Since when did we become England, right? But uh, Aswan, who's joined us in the studio today, Aswan, tell us uh, you had an opinion on this as well. Yeah, Assalamualaikum, guys. It's uh, one introduction to being introduced after being called the <laughs> Taliban. Yeah, <laughs> as an imam. Yeah. But no, yeah, no. I, I think um, I think there's three parties that have responsibility in this scenario. One, the person who's saying it, 
he should educate himself, think before he speaks. Mm. Then you're right, maybe he doesn't realize. Then the person who's being abused, mm-hmm. like you said, stand up, okay, look, this is not acceptable. Mm. Like, for example, in your example, if you had stood up and said, listen, um, I'm not quite comfortable with you calling me that. Whatever, it might be a joke. I've got nothing yeah. bad against you. But then the third, I think, is those around, totally. like every, the teammates. Yeah. Because I, we've all been, like, for example, we all played part of the same club. Mm. You've been in a dressing room where someone is like the butt of the joke. And afterwards, you realize if you're not involved, you're not directly involved, you're not the one actually teasing the person, and neither are you being teased, but you're witnessing what's happening. There is a moment when this is happening where you feel, oh, this is too much now. Mm. Or this is a bit weird. Like, okay, I'll, I'll have a word with him afterwards. Like, look, yeah. he, like I've, I can notice his body language, his facial features, his performance, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's like, it's not as simple as saying it's one person's fault. Mm-hmm. I feel everyone, and I think, look, Islam. Within Islam, there's a narration of the Holy Prophet, may peace be upon him, where he says, if you see something wrong, then st- where where you see something wrong and you have the strength to do so, stop it with your hand. Mm-hmm. Meaning physically get involved and stop whatever it may be. If you don't have the strength to do so, yeah. or your level of faith doesn't enable you to do so, then at least verbally say, this is wrong. Yep. Make a verbal stance. Guys, this is wrong. It's unacceptable. Yeah. If you don't have the strength to do that either, then at least think of it to be bad and then pray for the scenario. But that's the weakest of faith. So that's how it's mm. described. So I always remember this, like whenever I see something wrong or you hear something wrong, that it's as much as you're right. For example, I still remember there there probably is racism. There are probably racist remarks. There is probably... and And some people do it in a way where... If you ever were to call him racist, they mm. are really offended. Yeah. No, we're not racist. It's just jokes. We're just having fun. Mm. It's just banter. Like banter is such a word. It's almost as if it just mm. erases everything yeah, that you've yeah. done and under the banner of banter. But it's like, I still remember one thing I'll never forget. When England won the World Cup. And, uh, what's this the is the Cricket name? World Cup. Yeah, cricket World none Cup, of us yeah. were around in 66. No, no, no. Yeah. Cricket, the Cricket World Cup, yeah. <laughs> and uh, what's the skipper's name, is it? Morgan. Morgan at the time, oh, Morgan, in yeah. his press conference, he said... And, you know, we know that uh, he mentioned Allah in some way. Yes, yeah, so I think he turned to Adil Rashid, who's the spinner yeah. who we were talking about today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I think one of the players said, oh, you know, have you pr- your four leaf clover because he's mm. Irish. Mm. And then he turned to uh, Adil Rashid and said, uh, is Allah with us? Allah, no, no, that's but how I, he said I, it. I, said, I, yes. I think in the, in the, uh, in the post-conference, mm. uh, post-winning uh, the po- uh, conference that they had, mm. the press conference, he mentioned that, yeah, and we know Allah was with us because yes. Adil and these guys yeah, were praying. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that really, as, as much as you hear these stories, mm. but when it comes to it, like he won there, he could have said anything, but yeah. he did mention it in a positive light. Mm. Like, we know there's these two guys, they have a certain belief, and we know that their belief is important. Mm. And if it wasn't for that, you know, that's part of our victory. Then that, that's what made me thought that, okay, do you know what it is? Those two probably are very practicing. And you can tell in the way that they conduct themselves yep. and the way that they present themselves. They are yep. practicing Muslims. Um, they probably aren't indulging in things that they shouldn't be. They probably do have to say, I can't eat this or I can't do that or I can't do this. I won't celebrate when you yeah, yeah, spray I champagne do at the All end. That, they do that. Yeah. So that their example is leaving, is the best form of, you can say, expression. That look, we're Muslims, not just, it's not a switch. We don't just turn it on and off. Yeah, It's, it's our lifestyle. So, it, again, it has an effect, but again, it's about whether you have the strength to deal with it, mm. yeah. whether you have the strength to stand up and say, without any, because I can imagine in this scenario, mm. you're worried that if I speak up, does that mean 
my place yeah. or my opportunity that I may be in yeah. the line to get is yeah. now I'm not going to be. Yeah, as I'm not one of the boys yeah. in the dressing room. I can't take a joke. Okay, they won't put me on or they won't pay yeah, yeah. me. I mean, you're already at somewhat disadvantage because mm. you're Asian, let's just say. Yeah. We had a, a listener who's actually messaged in, and we appreciate this um, person being so candid. He said when he was at school, uh, one of the PE teachers called him a chapati boy. And he said it was laughed off then, and it was totally un- unacceptable now. Context is everything. And I think that just goes to show you that the experience, the Asian experience here, I would hope has now changed. But the fact that we're still going through these these types of probes and you know these types of investigations where ex-England captains are being pulled up is is still a sad indictment of where we are today. And, and have we rooted out racism? Not just about South South Asian age racism, but you know, for the George Floyd thing, you know, now and again you see players taking a knee. You're not sure whether they do it anymore. Now it's just done maybe on a once month, or you know, if they're pushing something. Um, yeah. But then everyone else kind of jumps up that. It's, you know, it's not just black lives matter, all lives matter. And then you start getting all those type of reactions. And it's like you can't even then then literally the black players, uh, you know, like Wolf Zaha and the, these types of players stop taking the knee. Said it's it's a useless gesture. Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. No one's doing anything. I think, again, it's it's difficult because my I've got, <coughs> excuse me, yeah. as um part of my job as an imam. Mm hmm. Not only are we obviously caring about the well-being of our internal community, but also preaching and visiting different schools and taking RE lessons. Mm. So I was in an area just past Milton Keynes um, and I was asked to come in to teach a primary school Yeah, and just introduce Islam to them, take the assembly. And it was a year three class. So what, year three children are maybe seven, eight, I don't mm. know, something around that. Very okay. innocent age, young age. Right. Prior to me going in and speaking to the children, the head teacher pulled me aside into the staff room and said, listen, there is no Asian child in this school. Okay. And uh, a lot of these children are probably, for the first time, seeing mm-hmm. someone of your your race. Wow. So please, please don't be offended. Like, they're innocent. Obviously, we've tried <laughs> to tell them. Just don't be offended. Okay. I was like, listen, I totally appreciate what you're saying. Don't worry. They can say whatever they want. I won't be offended. Yeah. So normally when I go... I go in the, the Asian garms, like, you know, the shurakamis, which is sure. like the long kind of men cultural thing that we wear in Pakistan, India. Right. Just to show, because in and around the area, there are representation of us who wear those clothes, but they don't really speak English. So I thought, I want to show them that, look, there are, like, I'm born here. Yeah. Roots are in Pakistan. I'm proud to be Pakistani. These yeah, are the Man United yeah, as well, as, as a typical Pakistani <laughs> yeah. Pakistan's would. Yeah, sponsor, yeah, Pakistan's the main sponsor of Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. Main <laughs> fan following is in Pakistan. Yeah. But anyway, so I, I started taking the assembly, gave a little very basic um, introduction. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'll take any questions. Hmm. Everyone put their hand up. Okay. I was like, okay, where do I start? So I just picked one random kid. Yeah. And like, we've, he was dead serious. And he just said, looked at me, he goes, what planet are you from? Okay. And like you know, for example, you can tell when someone's being innocent or someone's Yeah, yeah, sure. He was like he was seventy eight years old. Right. Dead serious and everyone was waiting to see what planet I was from. <laughs> and I was like, um, I'm from planet Earth. So like right. Oh. Okay. And the teacher I could see he was behind the clock. He just had his head <laughs> in his hands thinking, What what are they asking? <laughs> Next child I was like, Well, where do you live then? I was like, I live in Stevenage. Yeah. Have you heard of Stevenage? At the time I was in Stevenage. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I've heard of Stevenage. Okay. Next child with them. Well, what kind of food do you eat then? 
Okay. Like, because they, and this is when I realized again these are just seven innocent children, mm-hmm. and I didn't take think anything bad yeah, of it. Of but the lesson I learned there is, is education is so important. Mm. Like these kids have, it's just part of their their growing up without having any other sort of race within their day to day classrooms, playgrounds, social clubs outside of school. So if and when they see someone for the first time, like they did that day, or it might be when they go to college or university, or I'm sure they're seeing it in the media. Obviously, at that age, they're not watching the news. Yeah. But it's in and around how you engage, how you educate yourself. That, mm. Okay, this person might, by appearance, be different, but am I going to look at what's different or am I going to rather focus on what we have in common? Sure. And those common values we can then grow on and our bond would strengthen. Mm. So <clears throat> it's all about these values. And I think coming back to this case... Again, it comes to education in terms of there were three different parties involved. The person doing it, the person receiving it, and the people observing it. Mm. And none of them at that time stood up or thought, we don't know if they did or not, but it seems as if none of them at that time thought we we have the strength to say anything. Mm. And now all of a sudden we're in a, we're in a society or the world we live in, we're just one, you're one video away from being viral. Like what, mm-hmm. like this WhatsApp messages that you're talking on the first hour yeah. of the show. Like yeah. the, whoever thought, like they never thought that this would ever be leaked whilst they're having that conversation. Yeah. And I think now, like with the fact that everyone's got a phone, mm. unless you ban phones in dressing rooms, which they don't, I think some clubs do, but you're one comment away from someone just pulling out their phone and saying, well, say that again. Or yeah, let yeah. me just sh- like, let me take this video and show the whole world mm. what you're saying to me. Yeah. So it's such a sensitive time where, but again, this is my point. The, are, are we now getting to a point where, and this is where I think religion is key, mm. that we're avoiding doing wrong so that we don't get caught? Yes. Or are we yes. avoiding doing wrong because actually this is the right. The right this is yeah, yeah. Not, we fundamentally yeah. don't believe that it's yeah. wrong. Therefore, yeah. that's why we say it. But as opposed to saying so it, the, not saying something because you just don't want to get caught and, out. And that's what justice is. And that's where we'll find justice when it comes to it. That's the solution to all of our answers. Racism, whatever it may be, mm. leadership. That until you don't have true righteousness, until you don't have accountability but on the grandest in the grand schemes of things in terms of there's a god and he's all powerful and he's all seeing and whether i think i'm doing something in private or in open i know god is observing me and whatever i do in this world i'll be answerable for it in the next whatever it may be whether it's my comments my, th- my no, obviously you don't you don't get ever punished or rewarded for your thoughts mm. but it's your actions so the, these are things that that's the real solution believing in a god Mm. But you, I mean, our listeners might think, obviously, the, the voice of Islam—they're going to say that. Yeah. But this is the reality. Now we're coming to a world where people are just avoiding doing wrong because they might get caught, not because they think it's wrong. And and for football, I'll give you another example. I read this story of this um, this daughter. There's this woman who said that my dad tried to get me into going into games with him. So mm. I would always watch that with him at home. I would never go with him into the stadium. Right. And it was a local team that they supported. He goes, one particular game, he took us into the uh, stadium. Yeah. And then, like, he went into his own zone. It's like, it's, it's just it's like, he, it was a switch. And as soon as he went in and he's amongst his friends, he just turned into someone I had never known. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't know, I don't know this man to be my dad. Mm-hmm. And when we came home, I said to him, I don't ever want to go with you to the end of that environment again. Right. Like, I said, why not? We enjoyed it. He goes, no, no, you enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that you're racist. Wow. She said that to him. Okay. And he said, what do you mean I'm racist? She goes, no, no, you were making X, Y, Z comments. Mm-hmm-hmm. And uh, that was racist, dad. Right. And he goes, it, the dad then wrote that it took my daughter to tell me that because, mm-hmm. again, I just thought I was having fun. I didn't mean any, there was no malice behind it. I was just trying to get my team to win. 
no, I've got no hard feelings towards any race. But at that time, I didn't realize, and it took my daughter to say that I don't want a relationship with that person for me to realize that okay, that's wrong. Right. So again, it's it's one of those things that when it comes to these sports, even as fans, like we're invested because sometimes we feel that we have as much as a say, and we have a, as much as of a right to enjoy the sport as those who are actually getting paid to do it. So mm. then, if if I have that right as a fan, of course, if I'm buying a ticket or you're investing in it financially as well, mm. you then sometimes think that you're the twelfth man and you have to yeah, say yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, you have to do. Yeah. I mean, I remember, and I, I'm I'm um, saying this, but I'm victim of this as well. But when we used to play, when mm. when we had our club, I used to come and watch all the games, and I remember from the side, I would be taunting. Not in a racial way, yeah, yeah no, no, but almost like taunting the opposition and saying, "Oh, he's rubbish. Take him on. Oh, he's not going to do anything." <laughs> and I remember uh, our friend who was manager at the time. He pulled me aside. He goes, "Listen, you're what you're saying is fine, but then they're going to take the anger out on our players. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. please don't do this." And I, I totally, I didn't even never thought about that. I thought, mm-hmm. "No, no, I'm actually trying to get yeah, into yeah, their yeah. minds." Yeah. So it's just about realization. That's when I realized, okay, we can't. I shouldn't really be. Taunting the opposition, <laughs> but it, it just takes sometimes something to happen—a reality check for you to mm. realize, okay, this is right or this is wrong. Look, I, I think I think we talked about football, obviously, and uh, you know, I think I think the way the media obviously reports these sort of things as well. I mean, the reaction that we saw uh, post England's—you know, both both their last two tournaments have ended in penalty shootouts or you know, penalty uh, decisions. Now. You know, Bukayo Sako, Marco Rashford were the ones who missed in the Euro final. Yeah. You know, vile abuse afterwards, right? From England fans, not from, you know, outside of the country, but from England fans. Next time Harry Kane steps up and misses a key penalty in a World Cup, he did. Yeah. which he did, and the news stories in the media report was that because Jordan Henderson was subbed, Harry Kane was psychologically alone for 45 seconds before he took that penalty. Wow. That That is the difference. <laughs> I mean, why, you know, you, know you, you, you pillar someone else. Even the media do that, right? Yeah. To be fair to the media, I remember Gary Neville, the first thing he said after we lost was, I'm so happy that he missed. Because after what happened to Rashford and Saka, mm. like, our, they, they would have, like, it would have been so heartbreaking for that to happen yeah, again. Yeah, and he yeah, goes, yeah, Harry yeah. Kane's probably the only guy, for whatever reason, race or him being English, Yeah, no one's going to abuse him. And no one did abuse him. No. So, But at least they acknowledged that. And he said that on TV. So he acknowledged that on TV. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think there is, you know, um, that that's something that there's an equity that, that you, you would like. You know, racism in itself is wrong. We all know that. But it's how people react and treat you, I think, is is also key. And how the media reports these sort of things. I think that's where fairness... You talked about justice earlier, and I think that's a key part of this. Yeah, absolutely. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, equally, I think, I think we talked about... Obviously, we're a voice of Islam, and we talk about, you know, the Islamic element. And the Holy Prophet obviously said that there was no difference between caste yeah, and creed, yeah. you know. Um, but then... Equally, just playing devil's advocate, you know, there are a number of times when it comes to marriage proposals, as an example, mm. and you do hear that people say, oh, so-and-so's very fair-looking, oh, mm. that's a good match, mm. someone who's dark, perhaps not so. Yeah. So, I think sometimes we even need to look at ourselves, you know, because, you know, there are elements of racism which are practiced unknowingly or not. Yeah, and again, it's all on education, really. Mm. Um, it's... Um, with regards to, and, and it's not just right we're just talking about sports because it's in the news but you're right mm. I think in any field of life 
um, you have to be well educated um, but when you're you also have to be wary of the fact that you're not sometimes the public will form an opinion on the basis of what they're seeing in the news and that's where it's a bit wrong because you should educate yourself the news is a business at the end of the day mm. but in some scenarios and in some cases people are educating the, well people are forming an opinion of their experiences mm. so if their experience of a certain race is of a particular kind of like kindness or actually violence or whatever it is yeah. then again it's again that's just, you have to be sympathetic towards someone who's been through some sort of trauma mm. with some and the person that was involved in that trauma was from a particular race and now that person's kind of made a judgment and got now everyone that's from that race is that yeah. particular type of person and that's yeah. also wrong but this is where counselling and education comes in to look not everyone's like that you've had an experience we totally are sensitive towards that and sympathetic towards that but you can't just judge everyone on the basis of one person's actions and we, yeah. we as Muslims say the same thing that mm. for example if someone a so-called Muslim commits a, a form of terror attack mm. don't just say all of Islam is like violent and all Muslims are doing that no we're not all that like that we actually promote peace yeah. so every, it's like again there's two ways of someone forming an opinion what they see in the news or what they've experienced but education is key and these, in this day and age to educate yourself doesn't cost you anything yeah. and in fact it's always available to you you don't even need to leave your home to educate yourself properly mm. but again I think we've it's interesting you said this marriage thing because I was just watching like a very famous uh, radio presenter in America Charlemagne mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he was very, very probably one of the most um, well-known radio presenters in in, in America. In yeah, America. he's the next rapper. Yeah. So he he was saying like he came on a podcast and he was just saying like you know how uh, for, he was giving his own example. He goes, "If mm. we're so like pro-black," he said this example. Yeah. Goes, then black people should only marry black people. Right. And you're just saying he goes, "I'm not saying there's anything wrong with like a uh, interracial marriage, mm. but if you're so pro-black." And that's your life and you're like Black Lives Matter and all of this. Then mm-hmm. black people should marry. And I, I didn't know what to think at the time. I was like, what's, what's he saying? Right. Because he's such a um, prominent figure. People listen to him. People, whether it's for information or entertainment, he, his voice is heard. Hmm. And I thought like that, that, so that thing, whereas we thought maybe it's like a old age mentality hmm. that you marry in your race. But even in this day and age, people like him are of that opinion that if, you're a certain way then you should think like this so yeah you're right i think in from an islamic point of view look we the holy prophet may peace be mm. upon him in his last sermon mentioned this that mm. no white person has authority over a black or no black has superiority sorry no mm. white person has superiority over a black or no black over a white or no mm. arab on a non-arab or non-arab on a non-arab so he goes mm. we're all equal uh, and at the end of the day when we leave this world our bodies are going to get buried in the ground our souls are going to go up mm. and we're going to be judged on the basis of our actions not on how we look how much money we had what race we belong to what, what caste we belong to none yeah. of that stuff is important all is important is that you had this many manip- this was your life mm. you knew the purpose of life or what did you do in your life mm-hmm. in terms of your actions um, and, and that's it. Like where that, and you don't have to be of a certain race to to believe that. And I think for our community, the best example I can give you of how it affects us is that. I mean, even this mosque, like it's opening today. Yeah. And this mosque, although majority of our you can say members uh, who have migrated to this country or are from Asian background, but we we're not limited to Asian background. We have. 
a number of different um, races represented, a uh, number of different countries represented, a number of different eth- ethnicities represented. And uh, it, it's equal. Like It's not like we treat them any different or any less or any more or they have any less importance or more importance. Everyone has an equal opportunity to be a Muslim. Um, so it's... Again, it's one of those things that I guess with this, like whoever you speak to, they'll tell you on the basis of their experience mm. or what they've heard. Yeah. And they'll form a judgment. But we can only go by, as Muslims, what's been taught to us in the Holy Quran, what's been taught to us by the example of the Holy Prophet, may peace be on him. And that's that there is no room for racism. Uh, it was never really, in fact, one of the most beloved companions to the Holy Prophet, sallallahu May peace be upon him Was Hazrat Bilal Correct Who who was a slave That he freed uh, And he was extremely tortured mm. uh, And he was um, African Yes and, and he freed them And he, he, he and Their love for each other Was so uh, Unbelievable mm. And so dear That if you read the history And the accounts About How much Love they had for one another In terms of uh, as companions, mm. it, it is next to nothing. I mean, it's, um, it's, you can't compare it to anything else. Yeah, he was known for his call yeah. to prayer as well. Yeah, so he, he had a very beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. And um, the Holy Prophet used to make him do the call to prayer. Yeah, And in fact, they said that after the Holy Prophet passed away, mm. he stopped doing it because mm. he it, it reminded him of the Holy Prophet and he right. didn't I mean you can only imagine the person who we believe is the most dear to us yes. he's now passed away yeah. life almost feels like it's not worth living now because mm. the person we've loved now is almost gone and the one thing that he goes okay I know that this particular action of mine he liked mm. I don't want to do that anymore like it's just right. going to remind me of him yeah, yeah, yeah. so one on, on one particular occasion the caliph at the time requested him to do the call of prayer and he did it right. and he when he did it in in a history, it says that he was. It, it just it was a wave of emotion, like because mm. it reminded everyone of the Holy Prophet's sure. time, sure. and it affected him so much. He mm. goes that that almost after finishing that prayer, he was in such like um emotional state uh, state that mm. he, that eventually led to his death because he just couldn't bear it. So that, mm. that's the reason I say this is because that was the level of love they had for one another. Right. Um, and and again, that wasn't based on race or wasn't based on any particular he, from him belonging to a certain caste or whatever mm. it may be. It's just because he was a human being, and they connected. Like so, it's it's that's that's what Islam says. Yeah, and I, I think look, just coming back to the point that we had discussed earlier, I think. Um, it's important that we call out racism for when it shows itself. You know, I think this um, cricket as a, is, a, is a small microcosm of that. You know, it's happened in a, a certain environment, in a yeah. dressing room. Um, but equally, I think if we're quick to call it out externally, we should always look within ourselves as well as a community and, and not practice salient racism, perhaps, and those types of things. You should, we should always review all of our actions, be it racism, be it anger, you know, all of those sort of things. But I think this is one of those key components, perhaps. The only thing, again, take a bit of a lighter note, mm. the only thing I think about this case is, in particular, look, you're right, there might be racism, but the system has still allowed people like Adil Rashid and Moin Ali to get to the first team and not just get there, be like key members of that squad and not just in one format, in all of the formats. So then I'm like... Well, obviously, if there were if there were racism, if this is all true, it's wrong. But how much of this is? Well, it's because they never got the opportunity, or they just weren't as good as they thought it was. And now I like to get back at it. It's like, well, we actually were victims of racism. 
there's some of that um um speculation isn't there in the in the coverage and i think there's some of those comments from some of the in, mm. in, coming up in the inquiry that mm. um uh that azim was that he even said that well you know if you do this i'll just play the ra- i'll just play the race card watch watch me blow right. it up so he's you know I, I this is my point about the 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 context i'm not saying any of it is right but if you've got a guy who's let's say receiving some of that comment mm. and um outwardly at least doesn't appear to be affected by it and instead actually is have like engaging in it mm. and then you therefore as an individual think wrongly mm. actually he's quite enjoying this he's giving some back right he's giving some chat back right right that's something that you could also say is unacceptable yeah right <laughs> so he must be kind of up for this type of chat yeah 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 and i think that's to a smart point that's why it's almost more important that third party you know the others yeah. as we we're saying it's like the guys who are not involved who see it and go this is generally making me quite uncomfortable yeah. and i think now i think the difference now is probably there's more channels and more comfort for those other people to raise some of this from raise some I, of this I, stuff i agree but i think that that defense mechanism of just giving something back is a human instinct yeah 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 that yeah. is just okay you said something to me i will say something back to you i will stand my stand my ground on it but i think it doesn't make it any more right you oh, know, no. for, the, for that first comment to be said it's, it's just, just an i guess it's just an explanation mm. for how um you can see this thing evolving mm. rather than saying i don't think it's any of it's right but i can no. see and to some extent i think that is like tim bresnan and all the other guys gary balance in particular that's his yeah. argument isn't it which is like he never told me he wasn't kind of enjoying it he used to give me a load of kind of semi-racist chat as well that's what gary balance was saying about because i think he's from a in, he's from south africa okay. isn't he so he's saying he used to give me a load of chat as mm. well but we just kind of, I just kind of thought it was that's what it was and you're right it's not right and you don't always know what's going through someone's head and just because they're saying something doesn't mean it's not affecting them in a certain way but yeah. I, I guess I, my point is just I can kind of see how it uh, how it can spiral how badly. it can how it can spiral badly. <laughs> mm. I mean, look, I look back at um, you know when I was playing school cricket. Mm. Uh, you know, our cricket team was majority uh, majority Asian. Okay, with some you know with some uh, white English guys in there, like maybe three or four. So majority it was majority Asian captain, right? <laughs> I wasn't captain. Um, <laughs> but I look back at some of that, some of the chat, not against them, almost amongst ourselves, right? Mm. That I, in hindsight, think, oh, that is, I would not, that is not right, actually, looking mm. back at some of it. And um, and so to your point about looking, you know, to yourself and, you know, for the English guys in that environment, they're hearing, they talk yeah, to each yeah, other yeah. like that. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't know. I just, you know, in retrospect, I look, look and look, you're, you know, you're 16, 17, 18 at the time. Right? Mm. So you're just saying what you think is quite fun. And, but it does set a precedent, I think. Yeah. And, um, you know, looking back, I don't think, you know, I do look back at some of that stuff and think, oh, that was probably not. Not uh, the best kind of. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I experienced. I mean, that sort of stuff as well. I mean, playing football in particular. I yeah. mean, when I was at uni, I was we had seven or eight football teams. I was the one and only Asian player there, and I remember being called the p word, you know, uh, by defenders and what have you. And I was lucky. I mean, I think I was I was fairly mentally strong when it came to those sort of things. And my answer to them was, okay, next time I get the ball, you don't want to say that because I'm going to embarrass you. And if you've got the ability to go and do that, you will do something. Right? You'll beat the yeah. player and you'll go and score a goal, and you don't need to say anything else. But not everyone can, you know, can just answer so so vehemently, and then people do get upset, and it, it gets emotional. And twenty years later, when I was managing a football team, 
um, you know, I mean, the Muslim youth football team that we had, we had one of our players grabbed by the neck and called Taliban, yeah, P-word, and all those sort yeah. of things. He didn't react. And he didn't react. But it was like, okay, so when all said and done, it still prevails at some way, shape, or form, and that's where we have to root it out. I, I think, as in, look, it's interesting because your setup in your team was the same setup as our team, that we had majority of yeah. guys. We had about three, four um, white English people, uh, men, well, boys at the time. But we ran that dressing room. This is what I'm thinking, because we, we had a hold on that dressing room. But I still remember that when we were all together, we were very respectful of the fact that they don't understand our language, mm. They don't, um, and they're respectful to us. So it's very much like giving that respect. As soon as they left, we just it just turned on. We just started. We just turned to like the Asian Pakistani Indian that we were, and just the the, the conversation changed. What we were talking about changed, um, but it was never anything kind of malice towards them because they're different. It was very respectful in the fact that if we start talking about whatever. They're not going to understand. They're going to think we're a bit weird. Let's just keep it respectful. When they leave, we can talk about whatever. But it's, it's, yeah, it's one of those. You're right. I think it's responsibility of understanding or educating yourself. Or it could just be that reality check, something that hits you. Uh, and actually with this race thing, until you're not victim to it so yourself or anything in life, until you're not going mm. through something yourself, you don't see that to be an issue. It's so only when you go through something you realise, okay, this is a big issue. I think that's the point about the um, the experience, the factor of it, personal experience, isn't it? Always outweighs and kind of all the other things. You could be given as much information, data, research on a topic, but if you've experienced something on that thing, it takes a lot for you to change your mind about something. Mm. And I think that's why, you know, some of it needs to be pushed, but also just the kind of integration and uh, familiarity with different cultures and different people on a personal level will always be the thing that, yes, in isolated cases, might, act, might actually be to the detriment if you've had bad experiences. Mm. But the more and more you have of it, it's likely that you're going to find actually there's not much difference, right? And I think, mm. you know, that's when, you know, even in things like the belief, that's the most important thing, isn't it? It's almost the familiarity and until people actually know people uh, from different faiths, from different backgrounds, and they can see how they actually live and, you know, they're friends with these people. That's always the kind of biggest determinant on whether these things yeah. are, you know, yeah. people feel comfortable and these things are successful or not. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, again, I think from it's um, the last thing I'll say on this is look, like you're only in control of your actions. Mm. So obviously, we can't control mm. whether someone's having racial thoughts or if someone is adamant that he that's his banter and that he needs to like, express himself in that way to have fun. Mm. But as an individual, like our, our belief is this: that look, we're we're in control of our own actions. We're answerable only for our own actions. So if you are um, facing some sort of injustice or some form of, let's say, racism, then there are channels in which you can and you should raise it. But ultimately, our effort is matched by our prayer. And it's that prayer element that allows us to not get affected in, the, in such a way that it kind of just takes over our lives. We're now 20 years later, you're still thinking about this thing. That oh, this happened to me again, and where uh, this is what I'm saying. But if there and then you're taking action, you're doing whatever, whether the system supports it or not. But you know you've done everything in your power to raise this. You've mentioned it to the person. You've mentioned it to the chairman. You've mentioned it 
to whoever needs to be informed. Mm. And on top of that, your faith has enabled you to practice patience, show steadfastness, and kind of move on. Then our belief is that when that happens, God is always with those mm. who, who are innocent. And when when you do it in this particular way, God blesses your endeavors as well. So that that's, I guess, our stance on any form of injustice if, you, if you're subject to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think obviously that's been quite a topical point. And uh, I think it's good that it's highlighted as well, even in the news. That I mean, that, mm. that we talked about media earlier and the fact that they are giving this airtime. It's not getting buried. You know, it is front yep. and center. There was live updates this week. Um, you know, hopefully that's something that, you know, if it changes, you know, one person that there's, you know, a, mm-hmm. a difference or makes them think twice. I think it's important. So we'll move on into the last section is our sports roundup. Um, and I think my takeaway from this week in particular was um, how the mighty have fallen. And the reason I say that is I see um, a Carabao Cup being celebrated as <laughs> oh, if it's a God, European God. championship. I mean, God. how I thought you were going to say how, how Barcelona how, how, got how, destroyed at Manchester. How sad is that? I thought, <laughs> I thought you were going to say how Barcelona got destroyed in Manchester, how the mighty have fallen. But that's another. <laughs> that would only highlight his case that you're celebrating the Euro- Europa no, League no, no, instead no. of the is, Thursday night no, football. No. Listen, oh. the, the way I see it, the way I see it is this. Man United are in a position at the moment of luxury in the sense that the, in the league they've got no pressure on them. No one's and and this is just to show you how bad it is that no one's expecting anything of them. Yes. But yet I think they're still in the race because they don't have that pressure on them that constantly, you know, they they're gonna win or if not City will take over. Yeah. So that's why I feel now they're performing in the league as well. Second, I think Ten Hag is the perfect balance of today's coach of what's re- relied. For example, United went from not Moyes, but if you if you think about the next the two the two coaches that come to mind Mourinho who probably as a tactician is really good but in this day and age of where everyone's a little more sensitive and everything gets leaked he's not the ideal man because he's always in the news um, and something someone's upset or someone's putting something out there then you went from him to Solskjaer who knows nothing a, about football who knows, yeah who's tactically not coaching. yeah yeah he's, he's not a coach no. yeah he can't coach a player to become no. a better player but what he can do is create an environment where everyone's happy like put an arm around you yeah, <laughs> you're the guy like, so we found I feel like in Ten Hag you found someone who can man manage can keep the peace in the dressing room who's strict but also he knows what he's talking about and he's made average players look somewhat decent like I'm Marcus not, Rashford who's an average player you you can say he's an average player, but oh, at the moment is. he's performing at a very high level. Yeah, I know. He's performing at a very high level. and uh, But the player I, I was thinking about is someone like Fred, for example. Hmm. I, myself, as a United fan, I was thinking, what is this guy doing in our squad? Like, we're Man United. And we're, yeah. But now he's look, like he knows what he's good at. He knows what he's not good at. And he just enhanced him in what he's good at. So And, and even Casemiro, like that signing was like a panic buy, but it just turned out to be... He's a, he's, a multi, he's a multi-European Cup winner it's not yeah. like no but I'm saying it was a panic buy in terms of we had two losses on the trot it was two bad losses yeah. what do we do now and then they just went and bought him and at that time I still remember everyone was saying this is a panic buy oh, but good. now he's turned out to be like the heart of the team yeah. without him when he's not like I still think if we he was playing in that Arsenal game because of the card he couldn't play we would have beaten Arsenal but he's that yeah. he's that much of an impact player I think but yeah, no. I, I look out. Like I said, I'm not gonna get excited over a Carabao Cup. But what I will say sounds is, like you're really excited. <laughs> but what I will say, what I will say, it's a step in the right direction. And I think if he keeps going, 
and he keeps evolving these players, he keeps coaching these players, then there's no reason why in the next few years we're not where we should be, and that's competing for the title. But this is the thing. Right now, we're, the, we're third, competing for the title. There's not much in it. Like, But uh, there's no pressure on us. There's no expectation yeah. on us to do it now. But, but this is a... Generally speaking, it's a bad year in in terms of quality. In, yeah, in the sense that, look, Liverpool have fallen off, yeah. Chelsea have fallen off. Yeah, but then you can say that the previous years when City have won it, it's been a bad year for everyone else. No, they haven't because Liverpool and Man City were playing at such a high level that one point no, but ev- everyone else was him. playing bad though. Yeah, everyone else. But there were two teams which at this moment in time, there's one team who are doing semi-okay. No, Arsenal, Arsenal are doing amazing. They're doing very well. They lost to Everton. I mean, any team that loses to Everton does not deserve to win a league. <laughs> and I say that as an Everton fan. Yeah, you cannot lose to Everton. No, but they got a new coach in as well. Yeah, we have. But yeah, but that, that has an effect. Yeah, it has an effect. But my point being, if you're a Championship-winning side, yeah. you do not drop points at Everton. It just does not happen. In my mind, you cannot win a league with someone like Eddie and Ketia playing up front. I just don't think it'll happen. But my point being is. Yes, Man United have done well in a year yeah. where City are in transition. They brought in Haaland, who's obviously a world beater, but they're adjusting to playing. Next year, I think you'll see really what City can do. And my point to the whole thing is as good as Ten Hag may be as a man manager to be as strong as to kick out someone like Cristiano Ronaldo yeah. from the club. Yeah. All very strong points. But I think today's game is, deci- is decided by one thing and one thing only, and that's money. Yeah. And if you do not have hundreds of millions every year to plough into your club, you will fall behind. It doesn't matter who you have. No, but it's not all just money, though. That's what I'm saying. Because previously, Man United did have that money, but they weren't generating success. Yes. So they were spending loads, but there, there was no kind of result in it. Agreed, because you didn't have a coach who knew what he was doing. Yeah, so now we've got the right balance. But what I'm saying now is, for example, you mentioned City. If City don't win this time, okay, you give it to them that it's Haaland's first year, they're trying to adjust it. If they yeah. don't win it next year with yes. this squad, yes. I think Guardiola needs to be under real... Well, I mean, you won't ever fire him because the guy is amazing and yeah. what he's done for you. But you need to question how good he really is because with this squad and that striker in particular, yeah. who's like breaking records and they're not even first, and they can't win the league. Jello, I understand Arsenal might have the season of their life. Yeah, and I've got a feeling they're all mentally tuned in for the Champions League. I think that's where they all turn it on. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens if they don't win anything this year mm. and next year if other teams are getting stronger. Because Chelsea, with the squad that they got, if they get the right guy in, if the they right get manager. yeah, if they get the right manager in, mm. that next year is turning into a threat for any team. Liverpool, they've got the right guy in to rebuild. Like he's done it before, he can do it again. Has he ever rebuilt a side? I'm not sure. No, no. As in, he he did it to Liverpool. I mean, we yeah, took he, him from he, yeah, an average built team. Them up, yeah, he yeah. built them up, so he can build them again. He should be able to build them again. Possible. If, Possible. If I was a Liverpool fan, I would never think of getting rid of him at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Just because of the success that he's brought to the club. Yeah, agreed. So you would trust him in terms of okay, let's invest in him. Whatever he's saying, let's get. But I never knew that the loss of one player, mm. one or two players, would have that much of an effect on their team. Like Mane going. Yeah. That, that had such an impact on their team. Yeah, it has done. And then, obviously, then you have the perfect storm of, you know, you're running out of legs in midfield. I think that changed everything, stops in allowing them to press other teams. What was so successful? I mean, you used to go to Anfield, first 20 minutes, you were under mm. the cosh. And if, you're, if you came out of it, maybe one nil down, that's not a bad start. If, if United beat Liverpool tomorrow, is yes. it tomorrow today? I'm not sure. It's tomorrow, I think. I but don't if, look at mid-table games. No, no, no. It's the top of the league. <laughs> we talk about the top of the <laughs> well, league. Well, Liverpool. Like. Okay, no, but if uh, if United beat Liverpool, we say that's a statement in terms of that they're in the title. No. You don't think so? I Liverpool think rubbish, so. mate. They lose uh, almost oh, every week. They, they lose every two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. They, you know, when it's a, that derby. I don't think they've won three games in a row all season. 
They're still in contention it, to That's how bad them. the season has been. They mm. literally haven't won three ga- three Prem games in a row. That's not the Liverpool we're used to seeing, let's put it that way. Or the Chelsea that we're used to seeing. Yeah, but United-Liverpool is always a big game. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. It's always a big game. Yeah. And it's like, if, it, the way I see it is if United can beat Liverpool this weekend, then I would say silently they're, they're still there. They're just waiting for someone to make a mistake. I, I, I think if we win the league, next time your show is, I'm coming in as a guest. <laughs> if we win your league, you are most welcome. You're welcome every week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, welcome. and I'd love to see you in 2027. <laughs> no, no, we we'll probably maybe win. that early. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'll be back in a month. Don't worry. <laughs> Excellent stuff. If not with the Carabao Cup winner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thursday night football. <laughs> Thursday night football. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, no, I think it's, it's it's interesting. You know, I think that's a good thing about sport. It throws up uh, you know different uh, sort of results when you don't expect them, and I think that's been the beauty, in particular, of the Premiership. Like I said, you know, Everton beating Arsenal, who were on top form and playing brilliant football, and then you know we'll go and lose to Brighton at yeah. home, four yeah. two, you know, yeah. five two, and that's the sort of turnarounds you'll see and it's interesting to see comeback stories you know Ten Hag was a you know manager who perhaps you know some people thought were good but he's come in and done an amazing job so um, it'll be interesting to see how things pan out and obviously we've touched on quite a lot of different topics today um, racism being one and the Brexit agreement please do join us at our next Voice of Islam Jazakallah